This episode was originally recorded to release on the History Buffs podcast. Now that we're rebranding as Dig, we picked a few of our very favorite episodes to re-release as we get ready to start our new season in September. Whether it's your first time listening or your old History Buffs fans joining the new Dig label, we hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is a listener request. We want you to know we're listening when you tweet at us and comment on Facebook and send us emails. So keep doing that. Um, And it's the first of many. And it's a story that I think is not particularly well known, not here in Buffalo or outside of the Western New York region. It's a story that offers an interesting perspective on some of the conversations that we're having today in this country. How do we effectively protest something that we morally object to? What are the best and most effective ways to protest? Today, we're talking about the Buffalo Nine, a group of anti-war protesters from the University of Buffalo who are arrested and taken to trial for resisting the draft. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we're happy to be your historians for this episode of Dig. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The Vietnam War was perhaps the most controversial war ever entered into by the United States. The conflict in Vietnam lasted nearly 20 years, though the height of the United States military involvement was between 1965 and 1975. Our path to involvement in Vietnam is a little complex, and I'm going to really oversimplify here for the sake of time. So after World War II, most of the world was turning toward decolonization. India, for example, gained its independence from the UK in the late 1940s. Um, France, however, wanted to hang on to its colonies in what was then called French Indochina, a colony that included Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. They had held those lands, the French had held those lands since the late 19th century, but had lost them temporarily due to World War II, you know, because they were, like, occupied by Germany. Um, during the war, the colony was occupied by the Japanese, Germany's allies. When the Japanese and the Germans lost the war in 1945, the question then arose, what to do with this colony? Right. Since other countries were starting to release their colonial holdings, it was sort of assumed that France would acquiesce and let go of their colony as well. But they didn't. They clung to it. They faced serious pressure from both sides. On the one side, pressure from an independence movement led by the Vietnamese communist revolutionary Ho Chi Minh, gearing up for a war of independence, as well as pressure from Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese leader on the other side, who was pressuring the French not to go to war. Chiang Kai-shek was more or less handed Indochina by the United States, who did not want the French to get the colony back. But the Chinese leader was not super interested. Instead, he acted as a counterpressure against the potential conflict between the French and the Vietnamese, and his influence led the French to give up and led to the splitting of Vietnam in half into communist North Vietnam 
and non-communist South Vietnam in the Geneva Accords. This agreement was a way of negotiating an exit for the French and setting up a political future for self-governance for the Vietnamese. The problem was the two rival governing principles, communism and not communism. Uh, So who would rule Vietnam? Which one of these principles would be the guiding principle for the entire nation? The Geneva Accords led to an agreement that in 1956, there would be a free election for the country to determine its own fate. In 1956, however, the scheduled vote did not go quite as planned. Nguyen Diem was elected president of South Vietnam in what was clearly a fraudulent election and then decided not to go ahead with the scheduled national vote. Ho Chi Minh and therefore the communist northerners were heavily favored to win. And neither Diem nor the U.S. wanted this embarrassment. And so tensions in Vietnam continued to simmer. Diem was later deposed, and by the early 1960s, the United States entered the fray in the ill-fated attempt to stop the spread of communism. Obviously, this is a deeply complicated story that we're, again, oversimplifying. But we want to give some background just so that you can better understand where this Buffalo Nine story really, where it falls. Um, And I'm sure there are other podcasts out there that are featuring foreign policy wonks and and military historians that would give a better rundown than we can. And we'll probably link to some of those in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's just that I think that it's important to understand what the Vietnam conflict was about in order to understand why people were dodging this draft. Um, so we're doing our best. <laughs> um, anyway, so what does this have to do with the United States? And specifically, what does it have to do with Buffalo? As April mentioned, by the early 1960s, the United States had become mired in this conflict between North and South Vietnam. In 1964, in the Gulf of Tonkin, a North Vietnamese vessel allegedly fired on American ships, um, giving LBJ the excuse to officially escalate the war. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which was uh, a resolution passed by Congress, gave the president unprecedented power to wage war without oversight from Congress. This was all in the attempt to stop the spread of communism. And in March of 1965, the U.S. began its initial movements against North Vietnam in the form of Operation Rolling Thunder. And we were at war in Vietnam. And and I just want to pause here for one second to say that um, that Gulf of Tonkin incident that happens in, um, I believe it's June of 1964, but either way, it's in, in 1964, is later discovered in the leaked Pentagon papers that uh, a stolen or I should say leaked document that comes out of the State Department um, in 1971. It's revealed that that incident had been largely fabricated by the State Department in 1964 to craft an excuse Mm. to go into Vietnam. So even this basis of the war that was um, given in this Gulf of Tonkin resolution was largely falsified. Mm. The U.S. had implemented the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940, which authorized the beginning of a draft in the year before the U.S. entered World War II. Which, of course, proved prescient. (laughs) Conveniently prescient. The draft was extended with the Selective Service Act of 1948, which required that all men between the ages of 18 and 26 register for a potential draft. This was partly designed to to beef manpower back up. The military really dwindled down to 1.5 million men in 1946, which Truman 
and all of his wisdom, considered dangerously low during the early years of the Cold War. Okay, so I just wanted to interrupt you there to say that, as you can probably guess, the reason that the military kind of de- um, mobilized, demobilized so quickly and, and went way back down to 1.5 million men is is kind of obvious, right? It was men who had enlisted during the war who then wanted to come home, get their discharge papers, get married, use their GI Bill and yeah. live in Levitt towns. They, they did not want to continue to serve. These were not yeah. men who were signing up to be career um, right. army M- military officers, yeah. right? So... With that in mind, there was an aborted attempt to require mandatory military service from all men of this age, something like what they have today in Israel, but it was considered un-American and rejected. Which I think is really strange that that would be considered un-American, because what's more American than putting on the, the uniform and serving your country? I mean, that's held up as the most American, most patriotic thing that you can do. So I find it really interesting that it's maybe it's the element of choice. I, yeah, I, I, I really don't know the answer here. I just think is. it's interesting. I think it's absolutely that demanding that every American man do this one thing is, you know, the American dream is to live free and whatever. Die Not, hard. No. <laughs> and die hard. Yeah. But, but actually, now that you say that, that makes sense because because pressing into service was like one of the reasons that the Americans broke free from the British, right? Right, and, and the, one of the reasons for the War of 1812 as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it also makes me think of a debate that happens, kind of a rhetoric debate, a rhetorical debate, I should say, um, that takes place after the Civil War with the draft that, that happened during that war where there's sort of a, a fight over which veterans are the more upstanding citizens which ones deserve more praise from the Mm. country those who volunteered or those who were drafted and they universally agree that volunteers are better than people who were drafted even though they did the same thing right did the same work yeah they got the same wounds there's something there's something sort of mythological about volunteering yeah and i think i mean it's like maybe a terrible example but even that hbo series the band of brothers like Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a theme of the of the whole series is that the guys who the tension who come Mm -hmm. in as easy company are all the guys who volunteered as opposed to the guys who come later who are the draft Mm -hmm. sort of the draft guys and they're treated differently and, and looked down upon even within the ranks Right, because they waited. They, they did, didn't. Right. They didn't volunteer right away. They waited yeah. to be drafted, exactly. yeah. even though they're there and doing the same thing and dying yeah. at the same rate. Right. right, exactly. They did draft some men, though, though very, very few, between 1948 and 1950, to really help meet manpower needs in occupied territories during the early Cold War. Um, during the Korean War in the early mid, early to mid 1950s, many more men were conscripted, numbering over 1.5 million. Uh, generally, Americans approved of the draft for the for the Korean War. Um, Americans felt as though it was an important part of fighting the more nebulous, abstract Cold War. The Korean War ended, at least uh, effectively, if not officially, in 1953. But it didn't end the draft. The U.S. government continued to draft men, again, to help keep up manpower throughout the 1950s. These men did peacetime service, often in Germany. Military service became a staple of 1950s culture. Women were expected to become wives and mothers at a young age. Men were expected to put in their one to two years of service for the country. 
This system was generally accepted and supported in a culture of conformity and deference to authority. Because it was administered on a local level, it managed to fill the ranks fairly equitably. It is estimated that something like half of the young men coming to age between 1953 and 1960 served in the military after being drafted. That's huge. Okay. That's a lot of dudes. Yeah. And it's important to remember that after 1953, they're serving in a peacetime army. That doesn't mean that there aren't any threats or anything, you know, important going on, but that they weren't being shipped off to active war zones. Um, So criticizing or avoiding the system just wasn't a consideration. Um, And just as a side note, under this, um, it was during this time period of the draft that, like, my grandfather served in the military. I bet if you Mm. surveyed people our age, you would find that most of our grandfathers served in some branch of the military in the 50s. And I, I would venture that it was part of this Mm -hmm. if not draft but this culture of military service yeah another thing i wanted to add because i always thought this really was really confusing and i discovered it in the course of my research Mm -hmm. was that i always wondered why elvis joined the military and i I think it was 1958 i always thought that's weird Why did Elvis, in the midst of like the, the beginnings of, of his career, career just yeah. be like, well, I'm going to go join the army now? He was drafted. Oh, Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Okay. And now I probably sound stupid to some le- listeners who are like, duh. Duh. But- Elvis obviously was like drafted. <laughs> right. It just, I, I thought that was really interesting. Okay. As I was saying, criticizing this system just wasn't, wasn't part of the culture. It wasn't necessary. But later in the 1960s, when LBJ was handed the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, the situation changed. As the war in Vietnam intensified after 1964 and body counts began to rise from 216 dead in 1964 to 6,350 in 1966 to 16,899 in 68. That is just a meteoric rise. Um, the American people's opinion on the draft began to change. And in the interest of full disclosure, my uncle was amongst the the um, casualties in 1968, January of 1968. Bummer. Yeah. So the American people's opinion really began to change about this draft. Right. Um, for one thing, the old way of administering the draft wasn't working so well anymore. The drafts were administered by local draft boards, which had quotas. This worked well, when there's a relatively low demand for soldiers and a huge pool of potential draftees. Lewis Hershey, director of the Selective Service, created a system in which this surplus of men was siphoned off by creating categories of men who could receive deferments based on their service in certain careers or their placement in college or graduate school. But since there was such acceptance, even eagerness, to serve in the military, it kind of evened out. However, as the war in Vietnam heated up, casualty rates mounted, and the war became more controversial, more men started to use the deferment system to escape the draft. Of course, that in and of itself caused a problem. Who was able to access college or grad school or able to use friends in high places to ensure that they could get those critical jobs to stay home and avoid the draft? The white and the wealthy. Right. The draft in Vietnam disproportionately targeted the the poor, uneducated, and men of color. 
1968 was a critical year for Americans. In January, the North Vietnamese launched a campaign known as the Tet Offensive, a series of attacks against the Americans and South Vietnamese. The offensive shocked Americans, who had assumed, in no small part because of racism, that the North Vietnamese would be weak and ineffective fighters. And the offensive quickly inflicted huge casualties. As we mentioned a minute ago, those statistics Mm -hmm. going from, what was it, 600 something? To like 16,000. Yeah, 264 all the way up to 16,000, over 16,000 in 68. It's a turbulent year at home as well. Within the course of that year, there is the assassination of Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. There are race riots in the wake of the King assassination. There are massive riots at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 1968. And then there is a presidential election. But most important to our story is the growing anti-war movement in the United States in 1968, horrified by the casualty rates and terrified of being drafted and forced to fight. You're all probably really familiar with the anti-war movement from the 1960s. This is sort of the trope of what we learned about mm-hmm. when we learned about the 1960s. Well, and you've all seen Forrest Gump. Yeah, Forrest Gump, right. Obviously. And if you haven't, then... And hair. Sarah will come find you. Here in Buffalo, specifically at the University at Buffalo, um, the anti-war activism was largely directed by the same organization that was leading the movement at colleges. So Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. SDS had been founded in 1960 at the University of Michigan and was dedicated to creating a more open and free American society. A major part of SDS's founding statement, called the Port Huron Statement, was a critique of militarism and what was being called the military-industrial complex. But in 1960, there was no war. Uh, By 1968... Right. In in 1968, just to interrupt you, or in 1960, this was all sort of a... Theoretical. Theoretical, right. Yeah. yeah. These are the things that we stand this for. This is the utopia that we would like to yeah. see. Right. So by 1968, SES had become far more focused on the specific problem of the war in Vietnam. As a result, membership in the SES boomed, and chapters were present on campuses across the country. Uh, At UB, the University of Buffalo, the chapter of SDS rallied around the military research funding that the university used and pressured the faculty to take a more radical and active position against the conservative administration and the war. In April, the faculty senate voted for a resolution that said, among other things, that all necessary action programs be instituted immediately to relieve the stress and indignation existed among the deprived people of this nation and thereby hopefully avoid further violent domestic confrontation. SDS wanted, however, to get their anti-war protesting out into the community and not limited to campus. And they also wanted to escalate the protest and take an action that would bring attention to the anti-war movement. Right. They, they were getting frustrated with what they saw as all talk and no action. In August of 1968, SDS and another organization called YAWF, which was the Youth Against War and Fascism, decided to make a bigger statement. On August 7th, Bruce Beyer publicly refused to be drafted and instead declared that he was taking sanctuary in the Unitarian Universalist Church on Elmwood Avenue in Buffalo. 
Together with a group of other students, the band named themselves the Buffalo Draft Resistance Union, or the BDRU, and they took refuge inside the church. Outside of the church, it was sort of a party. Young people lay on the grass in the sun listening to Judy Collins singing protest songs, um, maybe using some illicit substances. Um, the the, smoking some weed. They were smoking some weed. The protesters, though, immediately brought on the ire of local residents who supported the war. One resident told the Reverend J.D. Wright, who was the assistant minister of the church, that if he didn't stop helping draft dodgers, his church would be burned down. Mm. In return, the protesters themselves used pretty aggressive language, saying, for instance, that if police tried to get into the building, they would have to do it over their dead bodies. They also, at one point at least, tried to bring weapons into the church with them, but they were talked out of it. And the police did come, and they brought the FBI. On August 19th, Dozens of FBI, Buffalo PD, and federal marshals raided the church using their nightsticks to clear protesters. In all, nine members of the BDRU were arrested for resisting arrest and draft evasion and were labeled the Buffalo Nine. This enraged the campus, who felt like they were at war with the rest of the Buffalo community. The campus newspaper, The Spectrum, ran political cartoons depicting Buffalo police officers wearing swastikas and ferocious editorials criticizing UB President Martin Meyerson for not coming out more strongly on the side of students and denouncing things like racism in the city and military recruiting on campus. Students clashed with the police in demonstrations throughout the fall, picketing City Hall, shouting, two, four, six, eight, we don't want a fascist state. Ooh, that's clever. And taunting Buffalo police with pig calls. The situation on campus became increasingly volatile. At the center of all these protests was the call to drop the charges against the nine. As a side note, Meyerson was so frustrated by the protests that he took a leave of absence from the college never to return. Yep, he skedaddled. He got a new job at the University uh, of Pennsylvania, and he he wasn't coming back. Where the students were quieter. It, they probably wore nice collared shirts and salmon pants. And they... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were very, um, very buttoned up. I don't know that to be true. I'm casting aspersions. Um, but an interesting note about that, though, was that the the book that I consulted um, in writing this it sort of was focused specifically on public institutions and whether there was something specific about public institutions that set them apart from private institutions um, in this kind of radical political awakening. So I don't know, maybe there was hmm. a big difference culturally yeah. between places like Penn and UB. Yeah. That's just speculation. The first trial of the Buffalo Nine began in February of 1969. Of course, student picketers marched outside of the U.S. courthouse. The prosecution tried to argue that the FBI had entered the church unarmed, only to be confronted by Bayer wielding some kind of weapon that he tried to use against the FBI agent. But the defense then showed pictures of the FBI well-armed. The defense was very in-your-face about the case. The defendants described themselves as quote-unquote working class and explained their actions as part of an opposition to the capitalist class, a kind of attempted destruction of the bourgeoisie. 
However, Bruce Beyer, the ringleader of the nine, was convicted and in March 1969 was sentenced to three years in jail. In September, the next trial began, inciting even more protest. 700 students stood outside the courthouse shouting, Ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, NLF is going to win. The NLF um, was the National Liberation Front, which was a communist movement within Vietnam that was trying to reunite Vietnam under a communist regime. So that's really taunting, right? Right. Like, we're going to lose this war and the NLF is going to win. Again, the trial ended up being almost as much about the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of the war as it was about the particulars of the case. Right. And as it had in the spring, the second trial led to unrest on campus, fueled by anger from SDS and other groups regarding the university's involvement with something called Project Themis, a scientific study that was being conducted by several colleges, not just UB, that was funded by the Department of Defense. According to a report from the Committee on Armed Services in 1970, Themis touched on several research areas, selection, surveillance, navigation and control, energy and power, information processing systems, technology of military vehicles, materials, environment, medical, behavioral, and social sciences. Uh, So very broad, very, very veiled, and also with the pretty broad potential military um, importance. When the trial concluded, two of the nine were acquitted, one had his charges dropped, and two were convicted, combined with two, four, that's only five of them. Yeah, there was two trials. Oh, okay. The first trial, this was after the first trial where Bayer was convicted. This was the rest of them. Um, Combined with the anger over Themis, UB was once again something of a powder keg. SDS and YAWF unleashed some of their anger on ROTC offices on campus, burning their files and books in a massive fire. Then they stormed the president's office, uh, and the acting president, whose name was Peter F. Reagan, called the FBI, resulting in numerous activists being arrested for various charges. Things only continued to escalate. In February of 1970, students protested the presence of the Buffalo police at a UB basketball game. And in February of 1970, students protested the presence of the Buffalo police at a UB basketball game. And it's not entirely clear exactly what happened or what they were actually reacting to, but my guess is that it was sort of an, an, an they believed it was an insinuation that UB students were untrustworthy or dangerous. And so there had to be this constant surveillance um, from authority figures. So students left the game, marched to the president's office and demanded to talk to the president. He refused, prompting them to throw rocks through his office windows. Suddenly, the police appeared. Students ran toward the student union, trying to find a place of refuge. When they got into the SU, they barricaded themselves in with furniture, along with students who had just been wandering through the building. But the officers managed to get in the building and proceed to beat the hiding students with their nightsticks until they either gave up or lost consciousness. But by the time they started to haul their arrests out of the union, they were confronted by a crowd of hundreds of angry students throwing rocks and debris at them. The police officers fled to the library, Lockwood Library, which is now called Abbott Hall, and hid. More cops showed up and went to war again with the students inside and outside of the student union, using clubs and tear gas to try to clear the students. 
the clash between students and police was revealing of the cultural disconnect between the students and blue-collar Buffalo. Bitter police officers muttered racial slurs and used extremely misogynistic language about female protesters. And things did not calm down. The next day, a thousand UB students stormed the campus security office, as well as buildings associated with Themis and the ROTC offices. This time, the, the Buffalo police came with greater force. Riot guns, grenade launchers, police dogs. Thankfully, things did not escalate past angry chanting. The intense clash between students and police prompted some to look into who had called the Buffalo police to campus. The Spectrum found a document that proved that acting President Reagan and Ed Doty, the VP for operations, had specifically asked the city to send the police. This did not help the students' perception of the administration as their enemy. Uh, on March 2nd, 4,000 students marched across campus burning Reagan in effigy. Um, sympathetic faculty boycotted classes in solidarity. Reagan, citing the violence of the students, officially requested that the police come restore order to the university. That's a quote. Numerous students that Reagan saw as instigators were suspended. 400 Buffalo police officers occupied the campus, and it was made clear that they would stay as long as necessary. To make the point even more fine, the Erie County Grand Jury indicted the leadership of SDS and YAWF for inciting riots. Students reacted by undertaking a kind of siege with police on the night of March 12th, complete with a bonfire where they burned the American flag. When they marched across campus, they smashed windows and tore down fences, as rioting mobs are wont to do. Yeah, that's kind of their thing. I was like, what do you do? Well, at least there were no cars to flip over. Um, again, the police reacted violently, attacking protesting and non-protesting students and faculty alike, even clubbing news reporters and a national news photographer. And honestly, this just gets crazier. By mid-March, $200,000 in property damage had been inflicted to the campus, and 125 students, faculty, and police had been hospitalized. The faculty was torn between the young and radical and the older and more conservative. And this book that I read that I mentioned before described one faculty member in, in particular uh, this way, quote, the radical historian Michael Frisch, which just delighted me mm -hmm. because Avril and I have both taken classes with Dr. Frisch, and Indeed. he really is a, a fascinating man. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of, I don't know, got a little bit of a thrill of, of picturing Dr. Frisch being kind of the leader of this revolution among the faculty. I wonder if this um, was pre-banjo days. Oh, I don't know. Maybe he was doing it with a banjo slung over his his shoulder. Banjos and anti-war songs. Well, um, Dr. Frisch and another professor suggested that the faculty occupy the president's office to protest the president's use of force against the students. 45 professors went with Frisch on March 15th. And the numbers here are, I think, what is one of the things that is most interesting to me. Right. 4,000 yeah. students yeah. marched in that parade where they were burning the president in effigy. That's even today. Yeah. That's an, in, an yeah. incredible proportion of the student body. Yeah. It's an immense number of people. Who are being sort of radical and protesting, man. Right. And even just this forty, these 45 professors, obviously UB has an, an, an enormous number of professors, but right. to have 45 professors in one place. Presumably mostly tenured. Um, 
Well, and that becomes a problem um, mm-hmm. later on as the tenured versus non-tenured. But um, I just think that the numbers here are really telling. Yeah. yeah. So again, 45 professors did join uh, Dr. Frisch on March 15th. They went into the president's office. They sat around a table in the office where a professor who had been a former member of the French resistance, because this just gets crazier, read aloud sections of literature that sort of captured the moment. And one by one, in this really dramatic, slow version, you know, or dramatic, slow way, one by one are pulled up out of their chairs and pulled out of the room by police who arrested them and hauled them off to jail. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. And this, I guess, reasonably, slowed the student protest down quite a bit. But the real influence was the threat of legal action. The grand jury investigating the incidents ordered the college to turn over class rosters, lecture notes, and course descriptions. It's like... Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. 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 <sighs> and uh, the grand jury made it clear that anyone who publicly took a stand against the war could be investigated and or prosecuted. And, and to, again, in their syllabuses, in their lecture notes, yeah. they don't mean people who are just like in their personal life anti-war, which they didn't want that either. Yeah. But what they don't want is professors... Teaching. Teaching with a quote-unquote political bent, yeah. which Sounds is so scary. familiar. Yeah, oh, which is too. really scary. Yeah. I mean, not familiar. Obviously, we're not at this point. Well, but it rings it rings true today, I think, because there are a lot of people who are afraid that this could happen. That this could, yeah, absolutely. And clear there's a precedent for it. Yeah. On May 4th of 1970 at Kent State University in Ohio, 13 students protesting uh, in a protest that was not unlike the one at UB were gunned down by the Ohio State Guard. Four of those who were shot were uh, died. Um, Nine more were wounded. At UB, students were horrified and also terrified. Right. Thousands participated in an imagined funeral march, uh, funeral march to show their solidarity with the mourning in Ohio. I, I just want to pause you there to say that um, one of the the students who was shot at Kent State, mm-hmm. um, a man named Thomas Grace, ended up. Um, he was from the Western New York area. He mm-hmm. moved back to Western New York, um, survived obviously mm-hmm. his wound, uh, and then went on to come back to UB and get a PhD in our history department. What? Yeah, in the 90s. And now he teaches at ECC. Son. Yeah. Very famous. He's a very, very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so after this imagined funeral march or this funeral march. After uh, Kent State. After yeah. Kent State. Uh, things really began to fall apart um, for reasons that were both internal and external. First and most important to our story, Bruce Bayer. Bayer? Bayer. Bayer. The ringleader of the BDRU, who was sentenced to three years in prison, jumped bail and fled to Montreal, spent six months in Canada working on getting access to a fake passport, and then finally moved to Sweden, where he was given humanitarian asylum. In 1972, he moved back to Canada, where he spent the next five years trying to avoid the draft and his prison sentence for dodging it. This left the campus organizations like SDS and YAWF without strong leadership. 
Those who remained pushed the envelope and tried the patience of the campus community, such as the Spectrum printing full-page images of couples having sex, alienating the large conservative Jewish population. Purposely. Purposely, Purposely. yeah. Two of the more radical faculty members were denied tenure, and some of the faculty who might have been sympathetic but were also committed to maintaining peace created a kind of coalition with President Reagan. (laughs) I know, isn't that funny? (laughs) It is funny. To maintain calm on campus. Some of the administration officials, such as deans or provosts, also left. While Reagan agreed to drop the charges against the 45 arrested faculty members, the radical left community continued to be attacked by the blue-collar community. Conservative politicians in the city denounced the student leftists as outside agitators, not our own kids. A student organization with headquarters in Allentown was firebombed, and the police bullied peaceful demonstrators. While Buffalo continues to have a very active and vociferous community of left-leaning political activists, they never quite regained the momentum of 1969 and 1970. And despite the intense protesting in Buffalo, the Vietnam, I mean, despite, because Buffalo was going to stop it. Well, right. And I mean, that's kind of a silly thing to say, but there's a real belief by protesters that they're affecting change. Sure. Right. And do they necessarily think that burning the president in effigy on UB South campus or what is now UB South campus is going to stop the Vietnam War? No, No. Right. But they, but they thought that it was going to do something yeah. nationally right and and it yeah. it did it did when combined with the nationwide with the nationwide movement, yeah. and and even then there was a lot more there was a there was a lot more to the end of vietnam than protest but at right? least at this sort of climax of activism in buffalo that was not the moment that ended the vietnam exactly War. right no um but Bruce Beyer was determined not to let the United States forget the sin that was this war, even as the rest of the country was ready to move on after 1975 and the conclusion of at least our part in the war. In 1977, Beyer walked across the Peace Bridge as an act of radical peace. Get the symbolism? Get the symbolism? Which is Peace Bridges in Buffalo, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. The, the Peace Bridge is the... Cute little bridge that connects Buffalo to Fort Erie. Yes. Um, which in is in Canada, Canada yeah. Ontario. Um, and so he walks across this bridge. Um, and he understood sort of the symbolism, the power of what he was doing, or at least he he conceived of it as something that was tapping into the history of this place. In an interview, he highlighted the story of this small stretch of water between the United States and Canada connected by this bridge where loyalists escaping the Revolutionary War had escaped into Canada, where escaping slaves had fled the United States and escaped into Canada, and where refugee draft dodgers and deserters had all escaped into Canada. And he thought that it was particularly important that he turn around and walk back mm. and, and face the music, and, you know, not necessarily to be a martyr, but to, um, to kind of force Americans to understand what they were going to have to do to someone in order to uphold this war. Does that yeah, make sense? Makes sense. Okay. He was joined by, he was joined by a former U.S. attorney who had agreed to represent him and a former Marine Vietnam veteran and former POW. 
And they were also followed by 40 more Vietnam veterans in a powerful demonstration of condemnation of the war. The moment he entered the United States, Bayer was arrested by U.S. Marshals, taken downtown, and put into jail. He expected to be sent to prison to fulfill his sentence. However, it turned out that the judge that had previously convicted him, Judge Curtin, who just recently passed away, Hmm. um, had undergone a change of heart regarding the war. Instead of sending Breyer to prison, he released him on his own recognizance initially and then ordered him to 30 days in prison. Hmm. He was taken to the prison in Alden where he refused to eat. He went on a hunger strike and thought, um, I I can make it 30 days without eating. Um, He's wrong. uh, And with some kind of he had some I don't want to say altercations. He had some interactions with prison guards uh, refused to eat, was put in solitary confinement. Um, I don't know quite how to characterize this, but I, what I do want to say is it seems very clear that he wanted this to be as um, visible as possible. Yeah. He, he wanted to make sure that Press he was coverage, capturing yeah. attention. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but he was released only 11 days later, which mm-hmm. he was thankful for. Because right. he was hungry and in solitary. So. <laughs> Um, Bayer remained committed to the cause, uh, however, and when the Selective Service Act was renewed in the later in the 70s under Jimmy Carter, he was arrested again, though he was later released for demonstrating again against the draft. And the Buffalo Nine still continue to see each other from time to time. Most of them are still in the area. Many of them, uh, most of them are still very active in progressive activism. Uh, Bayer left Western New York and moved to Massachusetts for a time, but then um, moved back and lives in the Fillmore district in Buffalo. Hmm. So I I think that this is all took place on South campus. Yeah. Oh, snap, son. Yeah. So this is the, this is the important thing. And, and forgive us for those of you listeners who are, are not local. um, Some of this may, you may not have the kind of maps and pictures in your head that we do, so we apologize. We'll we'll try to link some yeah um, campus maps, some campus maps, so you can see what we're talking about. Um, hopefully, can illustrate some of this for you. Yeah. But one kind of interesting footnote to this whole story is that during the same time that all of these protests are taking place, um, these really violent clashes, right. and I should point out these huge demonstrations with thousands of students yeah. taking part. Um, at the same time that this is happening, the SUNY system and the University of Buffalo specifically are gearing up to build another campus. And this campus is going to expand the capacity of the university, allow us to enter many more students. Um, but it's also going to be located outside of the city limits in a suburb called Amherst, which is north of the city. And so that's why earlier in the episode I said what becomes South Campus, because the campus where all of this action takes place is what is now called South Campus. It's the campus that is in the city of Buffalo. The other campus that is that was in the design stage and then was built in the the very early 1970s is now called North Campus. And that's where we did all of our work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I went to South Campus a handful of times. I TA'd in a class there one time. Really? One semester. Oh, weird. Yeah. It had recording capabilities, so... Oh. Don McGuire had his 
hybrid class. Got it. Got it. Yeah. There aren't too many of those on North Campus. So why I bring this up at all, why, why this is why this is important, even in the slightest, is that the reason that I bring this up at all, the you don't those of you who are listening from outside of Buffalo, you don't care about the construction of UB's campuses. Um, but I will tell you why this is important, why I'm bringing this up yeah. is because when they when all this is happening, they're still in the design phases of creating North Campus. And so it really colors the mm-hmm. way that they the architecture that they use on the North Campus. So, yeah. for instance, the, the North Campus is set up in a system that is very much unlike most other colleges and universities where there is no central gathering space. Right. There is no um, quad right or um what's the word that i'm looking for no a quad yeah like a quad that that where the buildings are all kind of organized around a central open park-like area where students can congregate um that's designed for that kind of thing Mm -hmm. ub does not have that instead it has like the academic spine which Mm -hmm. is like a line of buildings that breaks up all of the public spaces there are no grassy open spaces Mm -hmm. where people could kind of comfortably sit and protest the few places that are grassy are like hilly yep and they're on the out yeah. the outside of campus mm-hmm. so you're not you have no central visible space mm-hmm. right um the one area of campus um which i think is called technically the promenade the the strip down yeah. the middle yeah is that what it's called i think so sure. I, I think that's what it's called um if any, I don't think anyone ever calls it that, but I think no. that's what it's called. Yeah. Um, there is an open space sort of in the center of the major academic buildings going from the undergraduate library on the one end all the way up to kind of the student union on the other end. Um, but even that is really broken up because the buildings are, are relatively close together. So it creates a very narrow space in mm-hmm. some places. And there are pillar like planter things yep. that break up the space. So you can't bring a mob of people into that space without being kind of squeezed and pushed and broken up. Um, it's designed so that you can't have protests and that's not an accident. Yeah. That's how it was designed. Um, the, or at least not a protest where like, in a circle, you can have someone stand in the middle and reach the crowd while they're talking, right? Right. You could, you, I mean, feasibly, it is a promenade, right? So you could march up and down it. But you can't have that many people. Right. Because no. if you have 4,000 people trying no. to march on this promenade, you can't because you're you're impeded by all of these things that mm-hmm. are in the way, right? Yeah. Or it squeezes you, it, it gets narrow. Yeah. So you just, you you couldn't have the same kind of demonstrations that they had on South, what is now South campus Mm -hmm. on North campus. It's, it's not really feasible. And it would be kind of scary because there's that one main drive that leads right up into this promenade. Right. That police could take their military vehicles right up in and very accessible. Exactly. And again, all of this was, was on purpose. Right. The other really important part of this is that, the on South, what is now South Campus, I mentioned over and over again, we mentioned that people uh, protested or did sit-ins or 
occupied the president's office, mm-hmm. right? Went to the president's office, threw rocks through the windows. Yeah. So what do they do when they go to North Campus? They build the president's office like it's being built into a bunker. Yep. It's inside the Capen, Capen Library. Um, it's on the fifth floor, but it's inaccessible mm-hmm. by anything except for the elevator. Yep. And even then, uh, you you really can't just decide... Well, we're going to the president's office. It's not labeled. There's no signage. You mm-hmm. you don't know where the president's office is. It's not a, a welcoming space. Whereas, I don't know about you. I don't know about UVM. But where I went to college, the president's office was right um, inside the front doors of the main academic building. Yep. You could walk yep. in. Inside the, the door doors was of the open front all the time. administrative building for UVM. Yep. You saw her. The, the president of the, the college was... At all all over the place. Um, well, of course, my college was very, very tiny, so it might yeah. not be a really good example. But it, there was a presence. There was a visibility to the president's office at the very yeah. least. Um, hey, and you could, I mean, at UVM, you could see the president's house pretty easily. Oh, yeah. We, it was right behind campus. Oh, yeah. we the, the president's house was right, you know, off of campus, but yeah, but, but right down the road. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there were events there all the time. Yeah. So UB... When they go to North Campus, they take the president's office totally out of the mix. Yeah. They, they, it just is so amazing to me. It's like very reactionary. Very reactionary, but in a very permanent sense. Yeah. Right? Because once they do that, there has never been an effort to move the president out of there. That He could. He could. He yeah. could go back to South Campus mm-hmm. or they could find a different spot. He could be on one of the floors in... One of the other academic buildings like Clemens, where there's, you mm-hmm. know, the um, arts and sciences deans have their offices. Yeah. Um, but it's never moved. And so the effect of this is that it makes it much more it has become much more difficult to have a wave of protests the same way that there was um, in the, the late 60s and 70s. And even in I've been at UB now for this is this will be my 10th year that I've been in Buffalo and in on campus more or less yeah um i've never seen any kind of demonstrations or 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 protests that were more than maybe a hundred or two hundred people i've never even seen that it's just it's not a particularly political campus anymore well and you know what's kind of funny i was just thinking i've I've been talking to people a lot who went to ub in the 60s and or the 70s 80s 90s -hmm. and apparently the history department which Michael Frisch is yes. part of yeah. used to be over in the Millard Fillmore complex. Is that what it's called? No, the Ellicott complex. The Ellicott complex. Over in the Ellicott complex, mm-hmm. which is very removed from the rest of campus. Yes. And it's also like they say it's not built as an anti-riot building, but it is an anti-riot building because these are the kinds of hallways that are always twisting and turning like you yes. you could not gather students or faculty in that. I wonder if they purposefully and punishingly put the tried history to, department in the Miller. Oh, sorry. In the, in the Ellicott complex for that purpose. Tried to separate out kind of unruly departments. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be funny to discover? And that is interesting too, because the North campus is all humanities now mm-hmm. is all, well, yeah. almost all, there are some, some sciences still yeah. on that campus, but um, a lot of the students that are better behaved, like the dental school, the mental, the mental school, the mental, <laughs> the dental school and the medical school, um, professional 
type things are on South Campus. That's, I'm almost surprised that the law students aren't down there. But. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am sort of too. Yeah. Because South Campus is very pretty. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting sort of far afield here. But um, so the, the, the style of architecture at, on UB North Campus is also called brutalism. <laughs> which is yeah that feels right yeah and especially learning this yeah you know i think that there's something there right yeah. that they're they're really trying to i don't think this is a i don't think our current president is sitting in his office like you know crush their spirit yeah i don't think he's like evilly petting a cat on his lap <laughs> or something but i think that there was a Somewhere, even if it was maybe a subconscious thing, a thought of we are going to ensure that they will understand the authority yeah. here, right? Yeah. Through this brutalist architecture, mm-hmm. which really is um, it looks like is a really tough. Sad office complex, like a office park. Yeah. It's it, like boxy. Very boxy. Yeah. Gray not green. tones. Yeah, not yeah, green no green spaces yeah. to speak of. I mean, they do their best with the landscaping but yeah but it's hard because of the way that it was built so it can be really hard when you're you know like a graduate student and you went to you're used to these beautiful colleges where you spent your time Mm -hmm. you know that you were kind of drawn to as an undergrad and you get to ub and you're really like oh jesus (laughs) you know it's it's brutal it's get it brutal brutal sweet yeah all right well thank you to our (laughs) wonderful listener who gave us the the or asked for this topic asked us to cover it It on twitter twitter Mm -hmm. follower yep um i i was just thrilled to do this research it was Mm -hmm. not something i knew very much about um and and i have all sorts of wonderful resources i'm gonna post um in the show notes because some someone um a local politician organized an oral history project of cool. people living in the Fillmore district mm-hmm. in Buffalo. And one of them is Bruce Beyer. Mm. And there's a four part interview with him where he tells this whole story mm. better than we can. Yeah. So we'll link to that as well. In his own words. Yeah. So if you're a listener and you have an idea for an episode, yeah. you can, you know, shout at us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, we're at History Buffs Pod on all of those social media platforms except for Pinterest. We're at Pinterest.com slash HBUFFS. Um, and you can or you can email us hello at historybuffs.org. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Even if you just listen and you wanna chat. If you wanna yeah, yeah give us a shout out. Um we just love hearing from you. We just love hearing from you. We just you. love it. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be about Buffalo, of course. This one just happened to be about and we have a couple more in the pipeline for next season. Yep. So, so good look, good looking forward to it. Did that make sense? <laughs> nope. That wasn't a sentence. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> good looking forward to On it. On that note, I'm Avril. And I'm Sarah. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history and on Facebook at digpodcast. Thanks for listening. And she's Avril. And we are aliens. (laughs) (laughs) I was like very sleepy. Yes. This is going to cover all of our peas. Wait, let me just test some peas. Pee-pee? Pee-pee-pop.
Cap. Puppy. Banana. I should just read it how I wrote it. You did write it that way with request. I know, but I said request too many times in mine. Okay. Okay. Shh. (laughs) Puppy jacket. Don't you have like a wool one you can wear? Oh, a woolen jacket? Woolen jacket. That's a huge number of people. I'm trying to have a conversation with you. Sorry. She's licking me so much. Stop licking me. I'm going to send you out. Lay down. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.